Hey everybody, Steven here. Before we get started, I have three amazing deals for you. We are approaching the holiday season. We're feeling thankful. We're feeling generous here at GTM. So we're going to give back to you, our podcast listeners. First up, we're giving you $50 off a yearly membership to our premium service, GTM Squared. Our writers work so hard to give you deep, long-form analysis for Squared that you cannot get anywhere else. And we want to share it with you. So if you go to gtmsquared.com and sign up between now and December 31st, use the promo code PODCAST and you're going to get 50 bucks off. Plus, we're also giving away 20% discounts to any listener who signs up to our Power and Renewables Conference in Austin, Texas next week or our Storage Summit in San Francisco on December 11th and 12th. 20% off. Yes, indeed. Just use the promo code PODCAST at checkout. That's right. The magic word is PODCAST. It is your best friend going into the end of the year. Treat yourself with some discounts to GTM Squared and GTM's Power and Renewables Summit and Storage Summit by using PODCAST at checkout. Also, a big thanks to our Energy Gang sponsor, GE. GE's been a major force at our storage conference, and uh, they are a rising force in battery storage. GE has a new energy storage system. It's called Reservoir. It's a modular lithium-ion battery that can cut construction time by 50%. The product, it's new, but it's the result of decades of innovation in software, power electronics, and system design from the team at GE. Find out more about GE's Reservoir Battery Storage System at ge.com slash energy storage. From Green Tech Media, this is the Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. This week, making sense of Tuesday's midterm elections. Will Democrats do anything on energy in the House? Why did so many ballot initiatives fail? And what does the score tell us about the value of running as a climate hawk? First, we're going to look at what happened in states considering major ballot questions on carbon pricing, market design, and renewables. Then, how the chairs get rearranged in the House over the next two years. And finally, some specific races we were watching and why. In Washington is Catherine Hamilton. She's chair of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks. Getting ready to go on a big trip to Dubai tomorrow for the World Economic Forum. So packing my bags. In our last episode, you said you weren't traveling for a while. What gives? I lied. I travel all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Jigger Shaw is sitting there just outside of Washington, D.C. in Maryland. He's the president of Generate Capital. Do you have any special voting superstitions, Jigger? I don't vote on uh, election day anymore. I do the absentee ballot or do early voting. I just don't want to bother with the lines and figuring out whether I'll be sick that day or whatever. So do you just... like lick the envelope five times and then kiss it three times and then do a twirl before you put it in the, the mail? So I do generally drop it off in person. I don't generally mail it just because I find that like I don't want it to get lost. So I like smart. I usually drive it over to the place and drop it off. Catherine, any voting superstitions? Uh, 
Well, I watch returns generally in bed with my covers just underneath my eyeballs because I'm always terrified. (laughs) I don't have any routines necessarily, but in the two years since the 2016 election, any desire to watch the vapid chatter on television news as the polls roll in and the results roll in has been sucked from my body. I, uh, this year, I just went to bed at a reasonable hour, and then I'd figure, and then I figured I'd hear the most important stuff on a couple of podcasts the next day. And I'll tell you, it works for brain health. I have to say, like you know, Nate Silver is so defensive all the time about his polls. He was terrible on ABC, right? Like watching him in person be super de- super defensive was just terrible. Like I think I'm just going to stick to listening to him in podcasts. I always watch Steve Karnacki because he's like sweating like Beto up there with like all these microphones attached to his belt. And it's so entertaining. And he like digs down so deep. I find him very entertaining to watch. I did not see Nate Silver's performance on ABC. But of course, I love the 538 Politics podcast. I will say... I will defend Nate Silver for his defensiveness. I agree that he's often defensive, but it's because nobody knows how to read the fundamental statistics behind his analysis. And you have a lot of political journalists who misinterpret the way they are calling races. And so he has to do a lot of re-explaining over and over again. So I totally understand why he's defensive of his model. Well, it's not a good look on TV. (laughs) Okay, well, if you're feeling like me watching television, welcome. Let's sort through this election together on a podcast. To begin, I want to unpack some of the ballot initiatives that dealt with energy and climate stuff. And it was a mostly bad night on that front, although the picture is mixed. Recapping very briefly, Arizona voters shut down a constitutional amendment expanding the renewable electricity target to 50%. Nevada voters a halted an attempt to deregulate the electricity market there. They did approve a measure to increase renewable electricity targets by 50% by 2030, so a mixed bag in Nevada. Washington voters rejected a carbon tax for the second election in a row. Ouch. We'll talk about that more. Colorado voters said no to new regulations on oil and gas drilling that would have limited fracking in many areas of the state. According to a tally from Axios, over $100 million of opposition money from oil, gas, and utility companies was dumped into those states. And here are some lesser-known ones. Floridians limited coastal oil and gas drilling. Californians voted to keep the gas tax. Oregonians, specifically in the city of Portland, voted in favor of a tax to support a clean energy fund. So we probably can't cover all these in detail. I want to start with the broad result first. Jigger, I actually tweeted out that this was a pretty abysmal night for uh, these ballot initiatives. There were a couple big wins. I'm wondering if you agree with that. Was was it a bad night or not as bad as it seemed? No, I think it was a bad night. I, I Look, I think on the ballot initiative side, it, it really does go to the science of ballot initiatives, right? I mean, ultimately, ballot initiatives comes to a couple of things, right? One is exactly how the attorney general um, characterizes the ballot initiative. And in Arizona, it was characterized as guaranteeing an increase in your electricity bill and shutting down the nuclear power plant really in the ballot initiative. And then I think, you know, the second piece of it is exactly how it gets characterized in the media. And, you know, I think the friends that I have in those states have told me that they heard the opposition message to those ballot initiatives 10 times more often than they heard the pro to the ballot initiative. And so, 
The entire thing with ballot initiatives is you're going to an electorate who's not really well prepared to be educated on these issues and, you know, like in figuring out how to characterize it for them. And, you know, when we're when we have $100 million being spent characterizing it a different way, you tend to lose these things. Yeah, Jigger, you're totally right. The language on that ballot in Arizona also said, had the words irrespective of cost to consumers. So there was the specter of your rates are going to go up if you do this. This is going to be terrible for consumers. I also think it's really important who delivers the narrative, what the narrative is, and then who delivers it. So I get worried when someone out of state like Tom Steyer comes in to do a lot of ads because people who are in states want to see that it's a local grassroots effort, not something that's coming from funded or coming for, from somewhere else. Although, of course, the oil and gas companies are also not there and they're funding this. Since you brought up Tom Steyer, why is Tom Steyer picking those fights? Why is he going into those particular states and shooting for a 50 percent RPS when legislatively there's already all this momentum to beef up renewable portfolio standards? And in fact, Arizona Public Service, which spent $30 million opposing this ballot initiative, has said that they support that level of increase through legislative action and that they want to work with lawmakers to improve the target. So why even pick those fights when the momentum is there? Well, let's start by just saying that no one trusts Arizona Public Service. And when I say no one, I mean no one. What came out of this particular process is that Arizona Public Service, in order to defeat this ballot initiative, burned every bridge they had in Arizona to the point where their approval rating in Arizona amongst their own ratepayers is down in the teens. And so I like I, I think Wait, have that, you actually seen polling after the elections? Like where are no, you getting that pre, number? Pre election, yeah. It was a pre election poll. But yeah, no, Arizona Public Service is basically becoming hated and radioactive in its own state. And so from that perspective, I think the ballot initiative was a huge success. Arizona Public Service, as you know, has ruled that state with an iron fist, and it's the reason why Arizona is such a terrible place to do business for renewable energy. But I think that, you know, the tide is turning. And I do think that there's more likelihood of getting a state legislature to pass this clean energy bill now because we've so weakened Arizona public service. Well, hold on. Shouldn't the goal not be making Arizona public service hated, but getting them to the table? That seems to me to be a pretty terrible goal if if you just want the end result to be people and ratepayers to hate the utility. It's the same thing, right? Remember, we had our first RPS slash solar carve out in Arizona in 1998 at a 2% solar mandate. Arizona Public Service has been thwarting the will of the people and the legislature for over 20 years, right? The notion that we're going to go in to a state like Arizona where the ACC commissioners basically are employees of Arizona Public Service and get something done without actually leveling a playing field is ludicrous. Yeah, so I would say in a state where commissioners are elected, you need the onus is going to be on elected the right electing the right commissioners. I think that is super important and I think that's where they need to focus. Well, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm still having a hard time wrapping my head around why Steyer's group would pour so much money into these kinds of efforts when you have legislative action. And I, I get the regulatory capture piece, and there are a lot of people who believe that you need to force this stuff a lot more strongly, which brings us to Nevada, where there are a lot of concerns about the coziness between Envy Energy and regulators. And so there was a ballot initiative to open the state up to uh, market competition. 
and the a deregulation ballot initiative that passed in the last election cycle did not pass this time. Nevada has a law where you you in order to pass a ballot initiative you have to pass it in two election cycles in a row. With that said, they did expand the RPS to 50% by 2030, and that needs to pass a second time for the state to move forward. So Nevada, a slightly different story, uh, but a very similar regulation story, which is why we saw this push for deregulation. Jigger, any comments on that as it relates to your comments on Arizona? Yeah, like I think that the the broader theme here is that solar power today is far cheaper than almost anything else that the utility can do. And in these states like Arizona and Nevada, they are moving so slowly because they had made investments in technologies that are much more expensive years ago. And they just don't want to be forced to put more solar power on the grid when they don't need the power yet. But I just think that when you look at Nevada, for instance, you know, Nevada, in order to defeat this amendment that was going to be passed twice, or the second time, right on the competition piece, they cut deals with the Sierra Club and NRDC, who actually ended up backing NV Energy. They put out um, six awards for solar power right before the ballot initiative fight was initiated to prove their bona fides. And now, you know, I think the state legislature is going to take this second ballot initiative on the RPS and probably just pass it in the legislature. So it ends up being good news. But I think the notion that this was going to happen without the fight is crazy, right? NV Energy is only doing what it needs to do to protect itself. It's not doing this because it finally realizes that they need to be part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of context because for any of these initiatives, they have to pass twice. So the deregulation one passed in 2016 and lost this year. It was funded in large part by Adelson, who owns casinos and was Sheldon Adelson, Sheldon Adelson, who is a big GOP donor and runs all these casinos and wanted, you know, has been wanting to break away from NV Energy and has done so, but has had to pay a price for it. So he was funding it. It is a very blue state right now. They won the governor's race. They have both houses of their legislature. And so as Jigger says, they're probably going to, for the RPS, get the 50% by 2030, not even by having to go to 2020 to vote for it the second time, but to just put it into statute and, and make it durable. So, I mean, it, it on the whole, it's going to move everything forward. I think this initiative was tricky because of the way it was set up, the deregulation. And I don't think that is the biggest um, item on their plate. I really think it's it's renewables that's going to be the driver here. Right. But Catherine, I think that the point of my comment here is around why Timestar would put money in. And I don't think NV Energy or APS is viewed by anyone in our industry as being forward looking around deploying renewable energy, particularly when the federal ITC is slated to start declining after 2019, down to 26% and 22%. They should be front end loading as much solar as they could possibly put in to benefit ratepayers. And I think Tom Steyer's money in the end will be crucial to actually changing the playing field and getting APS and NV Energy to do the right thing faster. More than anything, these ballot initiatives prove that self-interest and economics completely trump any kind of visionary policy on climate change or renewable energy. So Sheldon Adelson, really hardcore Republican who's a major GOP donor, saw it in his best interest to 
disconnect itself from Envy Energy, go procure energy on its own, and support with tens of millions of dollars a ballot initiative to deregulate the state. And you know what? Sheldon Nielsen's company is probably going to go out and source a ton of renewable energy. Meanwhile, you had oil and gas companies dumping tens of millions of dollars into Washington State, Arizona, and Nevada to try to tear down these ballot initiatives because it is in their self-interest. And I saw numerous reactions uh, similar to mine uh, yesterday on Twitter. And my reaction was, it doesn't matter what ExxonMobil says if it puts a million dollars or a couple million dollars behind a carbon tax fight. It doesn't matter if Shell comes out with this future energy scenario. It doesn't matter if utility stands up at a conference and talks about customer engagement and the future of the prosumer. What matters is when their direct economic interest is at stake and they need to put money on the line. I do think the details matter in Washington State, though. I, I um, okay. Let's go there then. That's a, that's a good segue. Let's head on over there. Yeah, I I find Washington State to be quite quite troubling, and I actually saw Governor Inslee Monday night, and um, you know, we had part of this conversation. I I I think what happened in Washington State between all the progressives basically um, poo pooing, you know, Initiative Seven Thirty Two two years ago that was going to do basically a carbon tax that, you know, that was revenue neutral to the state. And then this one, which was basically a grab bag bill. If you look at the way this was written, there was a lower carbon fee. So instead of 25 bucks, it was 15 bucks. But all the money went to progressive, like, you know, spending uh, priorities. And, you know, in a state like Washington State that doesn't have a state income tax, this really blatantly looked like getting more money out of the citizens of Washington State to accomplish progressive, uh, you know, spending goals. And I, 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 so I just think it was done so poorly. And because everyone was so um, uh, just offended by the process two years ago, a lot of the proponents of Initiative 732 didn't back this initiative. So you ended up having sort of a loose coalition that wasn't strong enough to base, to get, you know, broader support in Washington State. I do think, though, that the way they structured it as a fee rather than a tax could be a model in the future. I think you're right. There was a little PTSD and, you know, maybe that factored into it. Certainly the rural and suburban voters uh, went against it, although it did it did get four more points than the previous initiative had. But structuring it as a fee rather than a tax um, allows you to put the purpose of it before you do in in the way that it's written its purpose built. So it's investing in clean air, clean energy, clean water, healthy forests, healthy communities. And you can say, buy, you know, however you're funding that, as opposed to a tax, which goes into the general fund, and a tax, you have to say who you're taxing first. So I feel like the structure of a fee, and creating that narrative could be a good model in the future. I just I think that it was stacked against them this time. And I'd be interested to hear kind of how it all went down. The oil industry put BP and Coke put $31.5 million into it. So money coming from outside the state to try to bring it down was flooding into that state. So I'm sure that created a lot of confusion too. Getting people to tax themselves for carbon is not necessarily an easy climb on a ballot initiative. This is why you have state legislators who get lobbied and have conversations and look at the nuance and actually craft real legislation. 
is the right process, I think, to go through for a carbon tax. I just think getting this stuff done on a ballot initiative is very, very difficult. And you see this with Justin Trudeau in Canada, right? I mean, they did this through the, the standard sort of legislative process and then, you know, sort of the federal process, not through a popular vote. I just think it's very difficult to get people to tax themselves. Yeah, but in Portland, Oregon, they have a 1% tax on large retailer receipts. So I think it has to be, if you are having a tax or a fee, it has to be really specific. And people were fine with that as going into a clean energy fund. I, and, but that's I don't think you can. I, I don't think you can ever like use Portland as an example unless you mention Portlandia. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably true, but I think we can learn something from all of these initiatives. Yeah, but the Koch brothers aren't going to go into the city of Portland and spend a bunch of money. Like they're going to go to the state level. So cities are probably less vulnerable to this kind of pressure. Um and and therefore like more more susceptible to change. So, let's just recap. I mean, wh- what is the most influential piece of this? Is it the money that was spent? Is it the way that these ballot initiatives were written? Is it just the the drawbacks of relying on ballot initiatives to make this kind of sweeping change? It, again, it's a combination of all those things, but I'm curious if you think it's one thing over another that influenced this poor night for ballot initiatives. I think in general, the clean energy industry has not yet decided that the ballot initiative approach is the right approach. And so you have these things pushed by Tom Steyer or other folks. But I think when you look at where we've really been successful, as Catherine suggested, it's really been a grassroots effort, like in Missouri, where P.J. Wilson passed the RPS standard back in um, the 2008 election cycle, right? And so I think that the top-down approaches that have been taken to these ballot initiatives are probably not the right approach. Yeah, and I think we learned something from all of these. I love that they're out there and they're getting voted on and fine if the oil and gas guys waste their money or you know spend their money in what they think are the most important ways. But some of the most significant outcomes in the elections were in states like Nevada, Colorado, and New Mexico, where you have new governors that are going to be really pushing on renewable portfolio standards and clean energy public policy. Coming up, rearranging deck chairs in the Capitol building. First, a quick word from our sponsor, GE. GE's new lithium-ion energy storage system, Reservoir, can cut construction time by 50%. It's modular, flexible, and comes shipped with the battery already inside. The Reservoir system brings decades of field experience and tech innovation into this simplified yet customizable battery solution. You can pair it with solar and wind, use it for microgrids, complement your thermal power plants, virtually anything you can imagine. With up to 15% extended battery life, GE's battery storage system saves energy for when it's needed most. Whether it's raining, hailing, sleeting, or snowing, GE's reservoir keeps the lights on. Learn more at ge.com slash energy storage. We march on into Washington now alongside the freshman class of lawmakers who will be there in the coming months. Democrats will have control of the House starting next year. There will be some real changes. We're actually going to have the chair of the House Science Committee believe in global warming. That's a big one. But does this really change anything in terms of legislation? So, Catherine, you believe it will. Let's start with leadership first. Who's in, who's out, and why does it matter? Yeah, so they are reorganizing in the House. They have a lot more reorganizing to do. Although Senate, um, because of some of the shifts in those races uh, and the outcomes, is also going to have some change in leadership. So that's an interesting chamber to look at as well. But 
Certainly in the House, some of the most important leadership positions for our issues are energy and commerce, which is going to be Frank Pallone from New Jersey is going to assume the chairmanship with Walden as the ranking member. And that's important for PURPA, for the Federal Power Act and FERC. It's important for innovation and grid technologies. On, at the same time, that committee, the leadership has been pretty bipartisan. I've had lots of companies be able to testify, uh, you know, as Republicans have invited us to do so. So their staff has been very op- open, and generally the committee members are open to innovation. So I think Energy and Commerce Committee is going to be a good place to get things done that makes sense and and where it isn't super partisan. Uh, natural resources with Grijalva coming up from Arizona as the chair. Um, he may be able to curb some of what Department of Interior is doing and Secretary Zinke, and there's the jury is still out as to how long he's going to last in his position. But natural resources is also really important. They have been very involved in Puerto Rico and the restructuring there, and I've worked a lot with Chairman, who is now Chairman Bishop, um, on those issues. But I think that what this will do is on lands issues, this will be important. Science Committee, like you said, it's going to be Eddie Bernice Johnson from Texas, Um she is going to turn it back to science. That committee has been marginalized a little bit. It used to not be. I testified in about 2001. Um, for the Republicans, I was I was brought in to testify on behalf of renewables because there were members of the Republican Party on that committee who were like PhD physicists. Um, and they were very big believers in science. And that has really gone backwards and become very regressive in that committee. But with um, Johnson leading, that committee has jurisdiction over research and development, labs, NASA. And I think that's going to be really important. You have people, um, new members recently um, voted in, and uh, Connor Lamb was in a special election. He won his reelection in a new district. He's on that committee. So I think that committee is going to have a lot of conversations about climate change and about science that I think will be really important. All right, so there are clear consequences to leadership changes in the House. What about over in the Senate, which is even more Republican-controlled now? Yeah, so the one I'm watching most closely on the Democratic side is Energy and Natural Resources, where Senator Cantwell from Washington has been ranking member and may move over to Commerce, which is more of her sweet spot. So I'm watching to see who comes up. It could be Senator Manchin from West Virginia. It could even be Heinrich um, from New Mexico, who is really smart on energy issues. But you know, Senator Murkowski from Alaska is pretty good on all of our issues. I've really liked working with her and her staff, and I think they're going to move forward on energy policy legislation regardless. It just may be a new ranking member. So there are a few paths to action. One is uh, increased authority when it comes to advocating for certain agencies in the budgeting process. The other is actually creating legislation, and I doubt that that will have any real impact, but you can create messaging bills uh, that do push the conversation about energy and climate forward. And the other is investigation. So the the Democrats now have investigative power in the House, and they can start to slow or question the deregulation agenda at the Trump administration. Which of those areas will have the most impact? 
Yeah, so I actually am much more hopeful than you. I, I try not to focus on any of the investigation stuff and instead focus on what can we get done. And so the Farm Bill has to be done next year. And the Farm Bill has all kinds of opportunities for renewable energy and clean energy technologies. So I look to the Farm Bill. That That is going to have to move forward in a bipartisan way. And I think we can get a lot done in that. The other piece is infrastructure. And I realize we've talked about that forever, but that is definitely something bipartisan and allows members of Congress to take something home to their constituents. And infrastructure certainly includes the grid and clean energy technologies and also resilience. So you could bundle that together. You could do something like like what we did in the stimulus bill with the 1603, which was grants in lieu of the ITC for installing solar. So I'm thinking for re- for resilience technologies, we could use that. So you could get to good climate outcomes without even having to talk about climate change, just by putting the right policies into infrastructure, resilience, and the farm bill. I totally agree. I mean, the, the big thing I'm looking for here is just that I think we'll have folks who will be able to insert the right 10 words into some of these bills to really allow for a broadening of who can get access to some of the loan guarantees and who can get access to some of the, um, you know, sort of other uh, pots of money that are available in all these agencies. And then what about the investigative powers? The, The Democrats will start asking a lot of questions about, you know, cabinet members and about the deregulatory agenda. How much can they do without pissing voters off. You know, there's a really fine line that they have to walk where they can start to ask real questions, both of the president for the Russia conduct and, of you know, the way the agencies are being run. So how much can they do without completely alienating a large swath of the voter base? Part of this for me, though, is to differentiate between the impeachment, you know, Russia, Trump, personal finances stuff, which is really an investigation. And just the general oversight function, which this Congress has not done for two years, right? I mean, when Secretary of Energy or EPA or Interior does something and a congressperson is interested in why they did it, they have every right to bring them in front of a committee and ask them to explain themselves, right? I mean, and that is something that they've done for, you know, decades, for, you know, for years. And so, you know, I just think going back to actually just having basic oversight functions, would be useful. Yeah, totally agree. And I also think there are a couple of other places where they can have impact in both chambers. One is on trade issues because of all these tariffs. And I think that really does impact districts and not just one, you're not from one political party, but anybody's district could be impacted by trade and also regulation. So regulation that impacts people's air and water can really have serious local implications. And I think that's where you can have you know, winning, winning narrative and winning, um, you know, uh, sorry, I think that's where you can really see some good narrative that gets to local issues and also provide some checks and balances. Well, let's wrap up with a look at some of the local races. Normally, we end the show with a free electron, but we're doing it a bit differently this week. We are going to take a look at specific consequential races we were following. So Catherine, who caught your eye this time around? Yeah, I think I've mentioned her before, Sharice Davids uh, from Kansas 3rd District. She was a White House fellow and a fan of the pod when she reached out to me and said, you know, I'm just feeling 
finishing up my fellowship and trying to figure out what to do. I didn't know much about her at all, except that she was super smart. She'd gone to Cornell, which is my alma mater. She went to the law school there. She's a serial entrepreneur. And so we had a great conversation. I said, well, you know, keep me posted on what you're doing. Next thing I know, she wins the primary in Kansas as third. And now she's one of the first two Native American women who is going to head into Congress in January. And I was just stunned. She's a mixed martial arts professional, which I did not know when I met with her. She's part of the LGBTQ community. She's just amazing. And she's going to join another Native American woman from New Mexico to the first Muslim women in Congress, the youngest woman in Congress who's 29, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and a whole host of other women, more women than ever have been represented in Congress. And I'm super excited about that. Um, over a hundred. Yes, over a hundred. And women, not get into stereotypes, but women do govern differently. And, um, you know, I was talking with a friend about this, about how girls play in much more kind of a flat hierarchy and in very cooperative ways, whereas boys are usually a little more competitive in the way they play. And this may be, you know, uh, going by stereotype, but... Women work really well in a flat hierarchy, and Congress is that. It is very flat. Your boss is your constituent base. You have leadership just so that structurally things will work, but they're not your bosses. Your boss is who elected you, and and studies show that women bring back 9% more federal spending to their constituents, that they sponsor more bills than men, that they're much more likely to work across the aisle. So I think this will just infuse really much more bipartisanship and more productivity in Congress. And Sharice Davids, she routed her Republican opponent. She is a uh, practitioner of mixed martial arts, and I believe a double-digit win would be considered a clean knockout in her world. <laughs> she And she went you know, person to person. She had a very grassroots campaign. She talked about kitchen table issues. She talked about, you know, education, climate, tri- health care. Health care was a huge issue. And I think, you know, that's the way um, a lot of these women are winning races is by really going at a grass, very grassroots level. And speaking of one of the many women who are heading to Capitol Hill, Ayanna Presley here in Massachusetts in my home state is the first black congresswoman from Massachusetts. So that is another historic win for uh, for women in this election. Jigger, you were tracking a bunch of climate hawks. What does your list look like? Who is up? Who is down? I'd like to know the tally. So, yeah, I'm on the board of climate hawks, and we uh, really endorsed uh, 14 candidate the candidates this cycle, mostly in the primary, because that's where you really have a bigger impact is making sure that climate leaders get out of the scrum, you know, during the the Democratic or Republican primary. And, you know, seven of the 14 folks that we endorsed in the primary actually made it all the way through, including, you know, my good friend, Sean Caston, and then Deb Hart um, Holland in um, New Mexico, which is one of the first uh, uh, Native American women going into the legislature. Um, you know, we had a tough loss with Jess King in Pennsylvania, but it looks like Mike Levin's going to pull out California 49. Elaine Luria was, you know, really in a tough race in the second district of Virginia and pulled that one out. Um, we'll see what happened to Dan McCready, but um, uh, it looks like this nut job is potentially going to, you know, take his place in the in the house, but, um, but we'll have to see, uh, you know, it's, I, I think what's critical is when we talked about the legislative agenda, 
you know, having people where climate is their number one issue, the the one issue that they actually talk about the most. Sean Caston ran ads on climate change, right? He actually talked about it at every stump. And so I think he believes in his heart of hearts that looking at legislation through the lens of unlocking economic opportunity in the climate sphere is something that is actually really worth his attention. That is something I think Climate Hawks is trying to do. And I think that's what we're going to get in this legislative session is, you know, just people whose number one issue is climate. I chuckled at the response on Twitter of Sean Caston's win. Sean is definitely an OG in the energy Twitter world. And uh, I've been following him for a long time since he was a, a businessman. And uh, he's been an active an active participant in energy Twitter. And a bunch of people ask, well, is Sean Caston now de facto president of energy Twitter? Uh, many people sent their congratulations and humorous responses. So there's a lot of support for Sean in the energy community. And it was very inspiring for a lot of folks in the both the scientific and energy business community who see someone like Sean running and winning on this issue specifically as an indication that maybe they should get in the race as well. The, the one other area that we didn't talk about that I think is critical here is the Democratic governors. Um, we had just so many governors, Democrat and Republican, frankly, that that on their uh, agenda was to pass 50% or 100% clean energy standards. And I think that's just going to be really critical. I think there was an analysis done that showed that the emissions that those governors represent actually gets us all the way to our Paris goal. And so I just think it's really critical that we um, made some big progress there. So what do these results tell us? Is the thesis borne out that if you talk about energy and climate change, it's a winning issue? So you have, I think, seven wins on the Climate Hawks list and eight losses, a a basic split. Uh, And then you have energy and climate, even if it is front and center, wrapped up in all these other issues like health care, the president's performance, Um, the economic issues. So does it tell us anything about the effectiveness of that messaging? Well, remember, the goal of Climate Hawks and frankly, of the clean energy industry at large is not to, you know, become the number one issue for the country. Like, I mean, I'm not trying to say that when people get surveyed, what do you care the most about that the answer should be climate change. What I'm saying is that as, you know, someone who, you know, loosely represents you know, a million plus people across the country working in wind and solar and batteries and EVs, etc. We need legislation to support our industries, right? That is how the infrastructure industry works. It's a regulated industry. And making sure that we have people in elected officials um, who are actually looking out for our best interests and making sure that the ag bill or other things actually have the provisions that we care about in them. And when they're doing the horse trade at the 11th hour, making sure that our stuff gets in the bill and some somebody else's stuff stays out of the bill is what's critical, right? And that doesn't mean that all you know, 230 Democrats in the House or or whatever have to be that person. It can really only be two people, but it has to be something greater than zero. Yeah. And I would just go back to when you look at the polls of what Democrats and Republicans and independents care about, you give them eight topics and the top ones for Democrats are economy, health, seniors. Energy comes in at number eight below other. For Republicans, it's security, economy, seniors, health, and energy, again, comes below other. Independence, energy comes one above other, but certainly not in the top three. But if you look at the top issues, the 
the economy, health and security, those are all very tied to energy. And I think that's where we need to focus is don't make this about energy, about clean energy or climate specifically, but bring forward solutions that get to those things that people really care about. And certainly, as Jigger is well aware, economic development is huge in clean energy and health is key in climate as is security. So I think that's what we need to to take from this. Now, what happens if there are few moderate Republicans on Capitol Hill? They're receptive to that message. And that is why I was following one specific race in Florida, Carlos Curbelo's tight race. Uh, he's a young guy who represents a district at the tip of Florida, at the 26th district, and he was just unseated by a Democrat. Curbelo is the kind of moderate Republican who you don't want to get out of the House, in theory. He's been publicly critical of the president. He's actually introduced a carbon tax. He founded the Climate Solutions Caucus. And with nearly half of Republican Climate Caucus members voted out of office this election cycle, the future of that organization is definitely in question. It'll probably survive, but like we don't know who's going to fill those positions of those Republicans who were voted out. So this race caught a lot of attention because it created a conflict within the environmental movement. Leading progressive enviro groups supported Curbelo's challenger. And in fact, they supported many of the other candidates who unseated Republicans who were willing to at least partially engage on climate. So it brings up this thorny question. As we go further to the extreme edges of the political spectrum, is there a place for moderate Republicans like Curbelo? If he doesn't get rewarded for sticking his neck out, is anyone will anyone actually want to take his place? What do you guys think? Yeah, so I actually don't think he stuck his neck out that far. The Climate Solutions Caucus does nothing. People just sign up to it thinking that it's a good thing if they've had a natural disaster. Like Ro Peter Roscombe, who lost to Sean Kasten, is on the Climate Solutions Caucus. He has done zero to help on climate or clean energy. Zero. So I think these guys, it's greenwashing that, you know, if you show leadership, you can show leadership in a lot of different ways. And I actually do think it's really important to have people on both sides of the aisle engaged in all of this. But, you know, I really downplay, you know, getting yourself or starting a, you know, a club of people who want to try to paint themselves as really being for solutions when they don't do anything. If David Roberts of Vox is listening to this, I'm sure he's clapping right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I well look, I I think like Carlos Cabello is a great example. You know, he voted multiple times to get rid of the, you know, the Americans uh, the ACA, the Obama Affordable Care, Care Act, yeah. Act, right? And so like, you know, like to suggest that that, you know, that voters in his district are going to like reward him for doing that when this entire election was on health care. Think about it. There are millions of additional people uh, because of the way the governor's races were decided and state legislature races that are going to have health care and Medicaid now because the expansions will be allowed to move forward, right? Like, I, I don't fault people for that being their number one voting issue and not climate change. But I'm not necessarily even talking about voters rewarding him. I'm talking about the big moneyed environmental progressive groups that are coming in and spending money on his challenger. So, I'm just wondering if like other moderate Republicans are going to say, well, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm not going to get the, the support of the groups that are actually putting money into this space. So why should I even talk about the issue? Yeah, I look, I think that um, that that is a really, you know, interesting position to, to have. And I, I do think that our 
issues should be nonpartisan. I, you know, I think people generally should be pro-economic development. But I think when you think about what EDF has done to raise money for Lindsey Graham and all sorts of other Republicans and what they got for it, basically what they got for it, they believe, is, you know, a change in McCain's vote um, to protect the methane regulations right after Trump got into office. And maybe one other thing, which is okay, but like in general, when you think about the size of our industry and how big we are, I, you know, I think that, I think that people should be more enthusiastically supportive of what we're doing. And it's not too much to ask for them to show that enthusiasm before I cut a check to that person, which is why I cut a lot more checks to Republicans in state races and state governorships and, you know, in other places where they have been more vocal in their support of our industry. Okay, so any issues that I didn't cover that you feel like are important coming out of this election? Well, the other races that I were watching were there were two Georgia Public Service Commission races that um, it looks like the Republican incumbents are going to end up winning. Um, one is going into a, um, a runoff because the the uh, Republican commissioner, I think, only got 49.8% of the vote. Um, but the um, but it was a lot tighter than it needed to be. And that's because of the, you know, cost overruns of votal. And so in some cases, you know, our esoteric issues are breaking through and Georgia, you know, voters were looking at, you know, trying to hold some of these public service commissioners accountable for their votes um, to, you know, basically, you know, keep this boondoggle alive in Georgia. Yeah, I think as uh, we continue to get extreme weather events, and I don't see those stopping anytime soon, uh, I think people are going to become much more engaged in resilience and in how do their members of Congress and senators uh, respond to those and will become more aware of issues. Well, with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. We are the Energy Gang. Thanks for being with us. Hit us up on Twitter if you want to flag any races that we didn't discuss and uh, just share your opinion on some of our analysis here. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get this show, and we'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.